Well, good morning again. Uh, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, go ahead and open them to Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 30. Mark 8, 22 through 30. And the title of this sermon is, Do You See Clearly? Uh, it's on page 844 in the, the Black Pew Bibles, if you're following along there. So today, uh, we will return again to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, as you know, we've broken Mark up into several smaller sermon series over the last year um, with other books of the Bible in between. We did uh, Mark 1 through 4, followed by the book of Colossians, and then Mark 5 through 8, followed by the book of Daniel. Um, today, we're going to pick back up where we left off, but this time... Uh, we're going to go the distance. So we'll start here in Mark 8, 22, and then we're going to go all the way to Mark 16 over the next several months. Uh, but before we dive into today's text, I, I want to remind us of the theme of the book of Mark as a whole. Uh, over and over and over again, Mark is asking and answering the question, who is Jesus? Uh, Mark is an account of the life of Jesus, and we know that Mark got his eyewitness account from Peter. But, like in the book of John, Mark doesn't include every single thing that Jesus ever said or did. Uh, he's not just taking all of the stories of Jesus' life, kind of throwing them into a scrapbook, and then just letting it all sit there. He's intentionally ordering the stories to make a specific point a true point about Jesus. So, who is Jesus? Uh, the question has been asked several times in the book so far, but today we'll see it asked in a whole new way. So let's dive in. Mark 8, 22 through 30. This is the word of the Lord. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man, and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, and laid his hands upon him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This section of Mark is a turning point in the book and is intentionally placed right in the middle. It's a pivotal moment in the book and in the life of Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, this text is a unit that's made up of two different stories that actually go together and in many ways parallel one another. I hope you'll see that as we walk through. Uh, our two 
main points for today's sermon are these. Point one, healing physical blindness in verses 22 through 26. And then point two, healing spiritual blindness in verses 27 through 30. Uh, The main point that I want you to walk away with today is this. Jesus gives us eyes to see him as the Christ. Jesus gives us eyes to see him as the Christ. So diving in with point one, healing physical blindness. Look with me at verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. In the book of Mark, we've seen Jesus heal a deaf and a mute man. We've seen him heal a woman hemorrhaging blood, a man with a withered hand paralytic, a leper, a demoniac, and many, many others with various issues. But this is the first time we've seen a blind person brought to him. So there's something new here that we're about to be taught. But before we get into the actual miracle, I want us to see something inspiring here. Uh, Like the men in Mark chapter 2, who brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus, These people brought their blind friend to be healed. The blind man doesn't necessarily come of his own accord. And there's two truths I want us to see and to imitate in these friends. Number one, see and imitate their faith. You don't bring someone to Jesus and beg him to touch your friend unless you truly believe that he can heal him. If they merely believed that Jesus was just a good man, or a prophet, or even a blasphemer like the religious leaders thought, if they believed any of that, they would have just stayed home. Now, I'm not saying that they had all of their Christology right at this point, but they certainly had some kind of faith that Jesus was more than just a good man. They've most likely heard of Jesus' compassion on individuals and crowns. They may have even seen some of these miracles themselves. And here's what I want us to see. They're acting on what they believe about Jesus. So I'll ask you this morning, do you have faith in Jesus? Faith that would lead you to trust that he's capable of spiritually giving sight to the blind. Do you trust him? Do you believe that if you were to bring someone to him, that he's sufficient to heal? Not just their eyes, but most importantly, their souls. These people in our text act on what they believe. Second, I want us this morning to see and imitate their compassion. With hope in their hearts, they don't just believe that Jesus can heal their friend. They take their friend to Jesus. Just picture this for a moment. This guy was blind. He'd probably experienced a pretty rough life. But he had one thing going for him. Friends who believed that Jesus could heal him. Do you know that you can take your hurting friends to Jesus? 
Christians, take your hurting friends to Jesus. These people certainly weren't disappointed when they did. So I wonder this morning, what, if anything, keeps you from doing this? Is there anything holding you back from bringing your hurting friends to Jesus? I want to challenge you this morning. Is there someone in your life who you can take to Jesus? Think about it. Maybe a name pops into your head. At the end of our service today, we're going to have an opportunity for you to actually write that name down and to begin for the next 30 days to pray for that individual. For you and for the rest of us to begin to pray for that name as well. Take your friends to Jesus. Look what happens next. Verse 23. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? Now, how do most people assume that Jesus will react to spiritual blindness? Many believe that if they darken the door of a church, that they'll be struck down in judgment. And while we definitely all deserve that, that's not Jesus' first action here, is it? Jesus doesn't begin by chastising this guy for his blindness. He doesn't say, dude, you're blind. What's wrong with you? Get your acts together, fix your own eyes, then come talk to me. No. He takes the blind man by the hand. Just take a moment to put your, yourself in this man's shoes. You're blind. You literally can't see anything. And God incarnate is holding your hand, leading you, making sure that you don't trip on anything, steadying you when you stumble. What a beautiful portrait of Jesus. Even before the healing touch, Jesus gives a touch of compassion. He takes his hand, leads him out of the village. This tells us something. Almost every time that Jesus healed someone, he did it openly, publicly. But this time, he does something different, right? takes the man away. So, this isn't a miracle meant to teach the village something. It's a miracle meant to teach the disciples something. What did they need to learn? Well, let's rewind to verses 17 and 18, just before our text today. If you remember, Jesus fed 4,000 people with seven loaves. The disciples then argued about the lack of bread in the boat. Jesus warned them about unbelief, or the leaven of the Pharisees. So Mark 8, 17 through 18. So they're in the boat, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? He's saying this to the disciples. (laughs) Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? And look at verse 18. 
Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? You see that? The disciples had eyes, but didn't see clearly. Jesus was showing the disciples exactly what he wanted to do with them in their spiritual blindness here. Taking them patiently by the hand. Leading them on. Then, Jesus does something that we this morning probably think is gross and odd. He spits on the man's eyes and lays his hand on it. Again, this is part of the kindness of Jesus. He didn't even have to touch this guy. We've seen Jesus heal in this book with a word from his mouth. We'll see him do exactly that again in chapter 10 with Bartimaeus' blind eyes. He just speaks. He can see. It wasn't about the spittle or even the touch here. But Jesus used a cultural assumption to bring confidence to this hurting man. He uses something that the man understood, something that he could feel. And Jesus asked him a question. Do you see anything? Do you see anything? This is the only time in the Gospels when after healing someone, Jesus asks how the person is doing. Again, at other times, he heals with a word, with a command. But here, he's teaching his disciples about their own spiritual journeys. He's about to ask them a very important question, too. So, how does this blind man respond? Look at verses 24 and 25. And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, I want to be clear here. Jesus doesn't touch the man's eyes and fail the first time, or kind of only partially succeed. He doesn't expect a full healing, nor does he intend one. Jesus never does anything by mistake. Not in your life, not in this man's life, not in the disciples' lives. He's teaching his disciples a spiritual truth through the two touches. At first, the man can see, but only partially. Then, he saw everything, the text tells us. The word used here literally means to see clearly from afar. So, he had 20-20 vision after the second touch. You see, the disciples were starting to understand who Jesus was. But they still didn't see clearly. Remember verses 17 and 18. Having eyes, don't you see? Now, I want to be clear. When it comes to conversion, or justification, being made right with God, our salvation is instantaneous. The moment we repent and believe, instantaneous. Our movement from death to life isn't progressive. It's not a process. It's immediate. But our spiritual eyes continue to grow our entire lives with Jesus. 
Did you see clearly the moment you believed? Did you understand everything there was to understand about God? Me neither. My spiritual understanding didn't come instantaneously, but gradually. It's still growing. It'll be growing, Lord willing, till the day I die. We're in good company with the disciples here. They still had so much to learn. But they had Jesus leading them by the hand to a place where they'd see much clearer. And this reminds me of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 11 and 12. 1 Corinthians 13, 11 and 12. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. Only as Jesus keeps opening our eyes will we see clearly. That's why Paul prays what he does in Ephesians 1, 15 through 18, that we just prayed through as a church. Uh, Ephesians 1, 15 through 18. Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Here we go, verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Do you see that? Even though he's heard of their faith, he prays that their eyes will be enlightened. That's something we should always be praying for ourselves and for others. Pray the words of Psalm 119, verse 18, which says, Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Coming to Christ is just the beginning of our spiritual seeing. For this man in our text, there was so much more that he didn't understand, even though his physical eyes could see. And for this reason, in verse 26, Jesus tells him not even to enter the village. Immediately, Jesus moves on. But what I want us to see is the topic of blindness doesn't change. Point two, healing spiritual blindness, verses 27 through 30. Jesus is about to ask two important questions. And I want us to see how these are parallel to what we just saw in the blind man's life. Look with me at verses 27 and 28. And Jesus went on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Remember what we said, the main question of the whole book of Mark is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? In Mark chapter 4, verse 41, we saw this exact question on the lips of the disciples, out on the boat, in the water. 
is Jesus? Who then is this? In Mark chapter 6, King Herod and many others are asking the same question. Who is he? Who is this man? But here, the question isn't being asked by others. It's being asked by Jesus himself. He asked it in two stages. The first one is here. Who do people say that I am? In other words, what's the word on the street? How would the general population answer that question? How do you think the general population today would answer that question? Well, we don't have to guess. Every year, Ligonier Ministries partners with Lifeway Research to do this study called the State of Theology. Over the next several months, we're actually going to be working these questions and answers into our liturgy or order of service in various ways. Take a look at this. Here's the general population. So statement seven, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. How did the general population respond to that statement? 52% agreed versus 36% disagreeing. 12% were unsure. That's honestly not all that surprising. But what is surprising, how did those who self-identify as evangelicals answer the question? So the statement, remember, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. In the church, evangelicals, 30% agreed. 4% were unsure. That means that a third of self-proclaimed Christians absolutely whiffed on something that's essential to our faith. Jesus being God not just the man in our text today, or the disciples, or the general population who's blind to who Jesus is. Unfortunately, it's those in the church as well. If they see it all, they only see men like trees walking. Listen, if, if Jesus is just a good moral teacher, we're all damned still dead in our sins, without hope. If he was just a good moral teacher, he couldn't die in our place. And more importantly, he couldn't rise from the dead. Both of these truths aren't on the outer edges of our faith as Christians. They're central. Now understand this. If you get this wrong, you're not a fringe Christian. You're not a Christian. This isn't a belief that's on the periphery of Christian orthodoxy. It's not a take it or leave it issue. Jesus is God. Very briefly, before jumping back into our text, here's a handful of scriptures that are clear on Jesus being God. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, another name for Jesus. 
The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John 8, 58-59 Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He's claiming divinity there. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They picked up stones to throw at him. They clearly understood what he was saying. He was claiming to be God. Romans chapter 9, verse 5. Paul says, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. A couple more. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. At Jesus' trial, look what Jesus says about himself. Mark 14, verses 61 and 62. It says, But he, meaning Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Having just studied the book of Daniel, we know what he's saying there, right? He's the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7, who has dominion over all peoples, nations, languages, whose kingdom will not be destroyed. Jesus is not just a good moral teacher. Jesus is God. That's foundational to Christian belief. So, the first question Jesus asks is, who do people say that I am? Some agree with Herod that he's John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Others think he's Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. At best, these people have partial vision. They get that Jesus is something special. Their responses are even positive. But they don't fully understand who he is yet. You could say that their vision is blurred. But next, Jesus turns to his disciples. Verse 29. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. Boom. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. While this isn't exactly true for Peter yet, we'll still see him with blurry vision until the resurrection. You get the point. At least he answers clearly. No frills, right? 
You are Christ. What does he mean? Well, Christ, or Christos, is the Greek word for the Messiah. He's saying, you are the promised, anointed one of God. The one prophesied about from the very beginning. You're Christ. You're the snake crusher, promised in Genesis 3.15. You're the better Adam, the better Moses, the better David, the better Joshua. You're the branch, prophesied in Isaiah, the suffering servant. You're the Passover lamb, the savior, the rescuer. You are Christ. Matthew adds that after saying you are the Christ, Peter said, son of the living God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Matthew records this. This is how Jesus responded. Matthew 16, verses 17 and 18. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So, putting all of this together, I want us to see three truths. Number one, this confession of faith from Peter monumental. Remember who Peter is. He's a faithful Jew. From childhood, he would have memorized and regularly recited what's known as the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. For Peter to confess, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, was revolutionary. (laughs) It wouldn't have been a pre-programmed response that he just recited because his parents taught him. It would have been exactly the opposite. He was saying something revolutionary about Jesus and revolutionary about the nature of God. And he was right. Second, in Matthew 16, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying that our eyes can only be opened by God. Just like the blind man couldn't open his own eyes just like his friends couldn't open his eyes for him. Neither can we open our eyes to who Jesus is without God being the one to do it. By the Father's decree, Peter's spiritual eyes were open. He believed and confessed Jesus as the Christ. This is why prayer is such a vital, vital part of evangelism. We must pray that God will open the eyes of the spiritually blind. We must be praying for our friends who can't see Jesus. So it's monumental for Peter to confess this. God's the one who's doing it in his heart. And third, again from Matthew 16, Jesus says, And I tell you, 
you are Peter. And on this rock, meaning the confession that he's just made, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This confession of Christ is the foundation of the church. R.C. Sproul reminds us that the church stands strong and unconquerable as long as it remains committed to its confession that Jesus is the Christ. Again, that isn't on the fringes of our belief. It's the foundation. The moment we stop proclaiming that truth, it's the moment our foundation crumbles to dust. Similar to his statement to the blind man in verse 26. So there's parallels here. Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Again, he knew that they still didn't fully get it. They still had views that he would be a military or a political messiah. We're going to see that next week in the book of Mark. They still didn't see clearly. It also wasn't time for Jesus to die yet. So he tells them to keep it quiet. So, in closing, I'll ask you this morning. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? If you're here this morning and you're unsure, that's okay. We're glad you're here. But we beg you to investigate Jesus' identity. We, like the friends in verse 22, want to take you to Jesus, to be cared for, to be spiritually healed. We beg you to turn from sin and to trust in Christ as your only hope of salvation. Every single one of us is born spiritually blind. Every single one of us. We're actually, according to scripture, spiritually dead because of our sin. But Jesus can heal us the moment we repent and believe. Because of his sacrificial death on the cross, our sins are paid for. And by his wounds, we are healed. He's the Christ, son of the living God. He's our only hope of eternal life. Let's pray.